0: Pray, and then we'll look at what we're going to be doing um, today and for the upcoming weeks. So let's let's pray together, uh, Father. Uh, first, all, we want to lift up to you, um, PT, Father, and we ask Lord um, that you would, um, in in the opportunities that he gets to minister to others, Lord, that you would um, work and speak through him, um, Lord. And we just want to thank you, Lord, that um, um, you're here with us today. Um, Lord, and you have um, great plans for us, Lord, and, and you desire to speak to us here, Lord and throughout all the studies during the week. Um, so Lord, we just want to invite you, and as I say, Lord, we, we, we come before you, um, and may our hearts be ready to hear what it is you have to say to us, um, help us to, to understand um, what it is you 're trying to teach us and, and say to us, and then Lord, help us and by your Holy Spirit to live it out and put it into practice and so we lift up this time to you lord and we just thank you for who who you are and what you've done for us jesus amen amen jesus is our good shepherd and this has been the theme uh, for the last couple of weeks as we've been going through the gospel of john and as we looked at last as I say last couple of weeks using an illustration of a shepherd and his sheep uh, we saw first hand, Jesus teaching us about himself, about who he is and what he came to do. And it was perfectly summed up in the verse that we looked at, the two verses we looked at last week, which was John 10 and verse 10, where it says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, and I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And for the next couple of weeks, we're going to take a detour from John's Gospel and we're going to turn our attention to another shepherd in the Bible. We're going to be looking at the Old Testament. And literally hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came, this man lived and walked with God, a shepherd boy who became a king... And he, in essence, will become a foreshadow of the Good Shepherd, Jesus. And he's going to be pointing us to him and preparing us for him. And his name, if you haven't guessed it already, is David. Uh, And and even those who haven't been raised in the church or know anything about Christianity have most likely heard of him. He is perhaps uh, best known for defeating the giant of a man named Goliath. Um, And but despite all of the things that David uh, accomplishes, um, all of the battles, all of the victories that he he wins, it is his character that the Bible repeatedly highlights. He was by no means a perfect man, as we'll see over the course of the next few weeks, but he was a man who loved God. And it says this in, in Acts, in chapter 13, verse 22, it says this, He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Uh, He is a man after God's own heart, a man who was willing to follow and do the will of God. And this is what he was known for. Imagine if at the end of your life, imagine what people would say, this person was known for this. And imagine what people would would say. And my desire is that we would learn and grow from the life of David. That we would see how Jesus was at work in and through him and around him. And thus we would be inspired to, uh, to become the same kind of men uh, and women, men and women who are no longer known for our sin, but rather as people after the very heart of God, the very heart of Jesus, our greater King and our greater Shepherd. Um, but before we begin to look at David, before we read today's text, um, let me just briefly sum up the context and the events leading up to, to the passage that we're looking at today, which is found in 1 Samuel. And let me, let's begin with, with the promise. So God himself comes to a man called Abraham and gives him a promise, that through his descendants would come a nation, and from that nation God would bless the whole world. And this is the nation of Israel. And after delivering them from slavery in Egypt, God leads his people to the awaited promised land. Um, But as we know, the the story doesn't end there. And Israel uh, entered what is known as the Judges' period. It is a dark time in their history, which is perfectly summed up by the very last verse of the book of Judges, which says this, in Judges 21 and verse 25, In those days there was no king In Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, the problem for Israel wasn't their lack of a physical king, but rather it was a failure to acknowledge the true king, God himself. And they did not do what was right in God's eyes, but rather what was right in their own. And and thousands of years later from that point, we're still making the same mistakes. When will we learn that replacing God in our lives with ourselves never works? I mean, think about it. Just take a second to look at your own life and are you guilty of doing the same? Whose code of morality do you live by? And have you tried to put yourself in the place of God? And at the end of this period of the the judges, the people cry out to God and they ask him to give them a king. Wrongly thinking that a physical king is what they need. And in essence, they wanted to be like the nations around them. They saw all these other nations, they saw that these nations had their own kings, and they were like, hey, why don't we have a king? God, we want a king. And they wanted someone to lead them, they wanted someone to fight their battles for them, they wanted someone to provide for them. But the sad thing is that they already had a king. And the reason that they didn't need a physical king was because they already had God. But despite the people's blindness, God answers their request. He says this, and it's in 1 Samuel 8, it says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So, Saul is appointed as that physical king over the people. And, uh, and the king Saul, he was a man with great physical stature on the outside, but what was severely lacking was his character on the inside. You see, although David had a full heart for God, Saul did not. And as you see Saul's story, Saul descends into sin. He repeatedly disobeys God and ultimately rejects God and his word. And as a result, God sends the prophet Samuel. He sends Samuel to Saul, the man who originally anointed Saul, the man who originally invested in Saul. And he says, essentially says to Samuel, Samuel, I need you to essentially hand in Saul's P45. Essentially, you need to tell Saul, I'm taking away his throne. and And, and the consequences of Saul's actions was the removal of his crown. God says God comes and he says, I'm taking the throne away from you and I'm going to give it to a better man. And unfortunately, Saul won't go without a fight. And he will spend the rest of his life trying to hold on to what the Lord has already promised to take away. And before the announcement of his dethroning and then his eventual death years later for Saul, many events are going to take place in between. Uh, and one of the first events that we're going to see is the anointing of a new king, and that's what we're going to look at today. So if you've got a Bible with you, could you please turn to First Samuel and chapter 16. So First Samuel and chapter 16, and we'll just Read through the text together as we begin. So first Samuel in chapter sixteen says says this And now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul so, hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, take a Hibber with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourself and come with me to the sacrifice. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? And then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. And now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose and went to Ramah. Our chapter begins with God speaking to Samuel after his confrontation with Saul. And we're not told how much time has passed since the events of the previous chapter. But what is clear is that it's deeply affected Samuel. And to the point that God has to challenge him in love for the sake of Samuel and the people that he's called to serve. Look at verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And at first glance, God's questioning of Samuel can seem quite harsh. But if you kind of look a bit deeper, you begin to see that the truth is far, far greater the first thing to realise that there is there's no one hurting more in this situation than God himself. He is the one who has been most offended. He's the one who's been most sinned against. And if you just look at the previous verse of, of the previous chapter, it literally says this in the very last chapter, sorry, the very last verse of chapter fifteen. So literally just look the, essentially the verse up in your Bible, it says this And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. God regretted? Now, what, on, what on earth does, does that mean, right? And some tra- translations will even say repented. Uh, and this is kind of, I think this is where kind of our English language tends to, to fail us, because it sounds like God made a mistake, right? Or it sounds like God kind of didn't see this coming, But when we read the rest of scripture, it clearly tells us that that isn't the case. And when we look at the original Hebrew word, I think we get a little, a little bit more insight into perhaps what, what God is feeling. Uh, And kind of, if you look at the original language, the word means properly to sigh or to breathe strongly by implication to be sorry. It's kind of like that deep kind of, well, wow. uh, that that that, that sigh is like God sighed, and um, it's it hard to get our minds around. But let me try and explain it the best way I can, from what I can see. It clearly appears that God is deeply grieved, and the reason that He is grieved is because He cares about Saul. And God, despite knowing that Saul would fall, despite knowing that he God would himself experience grief, still allows it to happen. He still allows the events to play out because it's all in accordance to his greater plan. This man's failings will not stop the purposes of God. And this is something that he needs to remind Samuel and it's also something that God needs to remind us is that the failings of this man will not stop the purposes of God. And the same is true in our own lives. The failings of people will not stop the purposes of God. And this is what I think God is trying to teach Samuel. Firstly, that there is a time to mourn. It is right to mourn and grieve when people we care for and have invested in fall and fail. And we're not called to, uh, to minimize people's sin or to excuse people's sin, but rather we're called to see it for what it truly is. Sin is the rejection of God and his word. Uh, and this could be, it could be a friend of ours who was following Christ but has now fallen back into a lifestyle of sin. Or maybe it's a mentor that we looked up to, who we were influenced by, fails to live up to the standard that they teach. Or it could be your favourite pastor or Bible teacher who you watch online who has fallen. And no matter what different scenario we find ourselves in, when they fall, we will naturally feel hurt. But the danger that we often fall into is we allow it to affect our walk with Christ and our service to others. And we see this in the case of Samuel. It appears his grief has gotten to the point that it is stopping him from fulfilling his call from investing and ministering to others. And essentially, God has to shake him out of it. God doesn't want this to stop Samuel from his ministry, from his call. And likewise, God doesn't want the fall of those we know to stop us from following him and loving others. And when a Christian or someone who claims to be a Christian falls, don't let it stop you from loving Jesus and from loving others. For so Samuel, God had a young man in need of Saul's investment. And imagine, who has the Lord got in store for you that he also wants you to invest in? It says this in the next two verses, verses 2 to 3 of, um, of chapter 16. And Samuel said, how can I go? If, Saul's, if Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, take a hither with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. Now you've got to love Samuel's response to God's request. Essentially he says, "Um, I'm not too sure if you're clued up on the situation, Lord, but things between me and Saul uh, didn't exactly end on good terms. And we, and we all do it, right? We all try to explain to God um, our objections and our reasons why we can't do what he told us to do. And when God already knows, right? It's not like God was going to turn around to Samuel and be like, oh, dang it, man, I totally didn't think of that. You're right, Samuel, it's right, okay, just forget about it. You just stay at home and you leave this with me. God doesn't say that because God already knows the difficulties and the dangers of what he's asking the Samuel to do. And the call of God at times will be dangerous and difficult. And Samuel has reasons, Samuel has genuine reasons to be in fear of his life. Saul is unwilling to let go of the throne. And if he finds out that Samuel is about trying to establish a new king, I mean, he's, he's going to do what any other natural king would do, which would be to take him out. But our God, who who calls, is also the one who promises and and provides, and He promises to be with him, and He promises to provide. Uh, he says, "He says, it's okay, Samuel. I've got a plan. Trust me." And it seems what God says is enough for Samuel, but is it enough for us when He calls us to step out? Will we trust Him? And I don't know what that that could be a a a huge amount of different scenarios and different things that God could be asking us to do. Maybe it's having that difficult conversation with someone you've been putting it off for, for far too long. Maybe it's stepping out and trying something new. Maybe it's stepping out and investing in this person or trying to tell someone about Jesus. Maybe it's moving to a new location that he's calling you to. Maybe it's leading you to a new occupation. Wherever he's calling you to, to go or where he's calling you to go, If it truly is God calling you, and that's the most important thing, is it it truly God calling you? And if it is, will you then be obedient to follow? And it says this in the next few verses, verse 4 to 5, So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So sanctify yourselves and come with me, to sacrifice, and then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Samuel acts in obedience, even though he doesn't have all the details. He still doesn't know which, which son it is. He's still relying on God to show him when he gets there. And he's still, he's still relying on God that this whole kind of plan is actually going to work and, and Saul's not going to see through it. He's still relying on God and it is an example of the truth that obedience will often come or be required of us before understanding. Often with with God, that obedience will often come before understanding. God will often call us to trust him even when we don't understand. And the most kind of famous proverb which comes to mind when we think about that is Proverbs 3, 5 to 6 where he says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, and in all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path. So He will make straight your paths. This ultimately comes down to an issue of the heart, and who will you trust? Will you trust God and His word, or will you trust yourself? And do you notice in that proverb that it is the trusting of God that comes first and then his direction and leading. Him making our paths straight comes as a direct result of us trusting and acknowledging him. So are are we doing that? Trusting God is not merely developed in one-time big life decision moments but rather it is developed by a daily relationship with him. We develop that trust of God daily. We do it now. We walk with him now, so that when the big life choices do come along, we already have that relationship with him. We're already following him. We're already listening to him, as opposed to what we tend to do is we put God on hold, and then when we need to make a big decision, we're like, hey God, okay, now I need your help. Now I need to know what you're saying. And, and God just never intended our relationship to be like that with him. Think about it. Think about the idea of the question of how do you know God is speaking? And this is my suggestion kind of in falling in line with that, that we it is by knowing his voice. And, and knowing his voice comes by spending time with him. And I think about Samuel, the guy we're talking about now, this prophet. Samuel, the first time that God spoke to him as a young boy, he didn't even realize it was God. Right? He thought it was the priest Eli calling him. And may I suggest that could it be that he didn't know the voice of God because he didn't have a personal relationship with him. And what we find is that from that point forward, Samuel spent the remainder of his life listening and speaking with God. And can the same be said of us? And God may not speak audibly to you as he maybe did with Samuel, but he certainly still wants to speak with you now and his main tool for that is through his word. Are you, are, you, are you only turning to God and his word when you need to make a decision? Or are you daily coming before him? Coming to his word, sitting underneath him, learning about who he is and spending time with him, talking to him in prayer, being spoken to through his word. Is there that daily walk and relationship with him. verse 6 the next verse says this so it was when they came that he took Eliab and said surely the Lord's anointed is before him ok so the first son is brought forward and Samuel simply looking at his exterior he thinks he's a guy and what from their outward appearance makes somebody look like their king material I'm guessing he would this is my opinion I'm guessing he would be would have been tall strong well, Bill may be athletic. I reckon he's a guy who looks like he can handle himself in the fight. I'm pretty sure he had a beard as well. Definitely had a beard. But whatever, he, whatever Samuel saw, whatever he saw in this guy, just in the outward appearance, Samuel was convinced. Hey, this is, this is the guy, surely, this is the guy I meant to anoint. But he was completely wrong. And the Lord says this in the next verse, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel... Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God is not like you and me. He is different. And God does not see things the way that we do he has a different vision. He has a greater vision and we we see the exterior, but he sees the heart. And if God calls us to become more like him, then he's calling us to change the way that we look at people. He calls us to focus on the heart and not just the surface. And that's kind of the principle. You can kind of see even the the whole of the, That's kind of the... The kind of the crux of the text is this: this thing that we read about God, that He sees things differently. He doesn't just see our physical appearance, but He looks to the heart. And the truth is that we are often consumed by that which is on the outside, whereas God is focused on that which is the inside. And let's begin to kind of play, let's begin to look at the application of that, that Jesus and God Himself looks at the heart when we only see the outer. I want you to think about a couple of things. Think about this question. Which do you invest in more? Is it your, the physical appearance or is it the hidden person of the heart? We live in an outward appearance-driven world, right? Just look at social media. It is essentially a platform that exists to present an external version of yourself, whether that version is true or not. You know, are we spending more time trying to look good on social media or are we trying to develop our character? Physical appearance, and there's nothing wrong in looking good, there's nothing wrong in keep being healthy, but are we going to the gym, are we buying nice clothes? And as I say, it's not like those things are wrong, but how much of it is really developing our heart? And how much of it, or how much of it is just us focusing on our outward appearance? Out of, in our our daily lives and and as we go through the week, how much of our time and our money and our energy is spent on our hearts and investing on our hearts and how much of it is literally just going on our physical appearance. And this struggle, this is is a struggle for both men and women. But I think particularly in our culture, uh, women are constantly told to focus on their appearance. Right, I'm, I'm guessing, not that I do this, so I don't pick up women's magazines, I don't really recommend anybody should anyway, but I'm guessing that if you were to pick up a women's magazine, I'm almost certain you're not going to really find anything about character and about developing godly character. I'm just going to, that's just a guess. I'm, well, I'm pretty sure I'm right on that anyway. But the world, essentially the world tells women, hey women, treasure, the, the world tells women to treasure their physical appearance, but God puts much more value on something far greater. It says this in, in, in First Peter chapter three, verse three to four, it says this speaking to the women, it says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And we could spend hours and hours talking about just the amazing truths in that verse, but let me just briefly just uh, just uh, call out a couple of things on that physical. What that verse tells us is that physical beauty perishes, but beauty of the heart lasts forever. And ladies, it is your heart that God finds most precious. And that is a radical message that the world is in desperate need of hearing. So focus on the hidden person of the heart. And men, we're called to encourage um, our sisters, our wives in doing that. And single men, when you're looking for a wife, don't just look at her physical appearance, but search deeper to see her heart. Because that's what God himself finds most precious. It is that which is most valuable. So which are you investing more in? Is it simply the physical appearance? Is it simply looking good on the surface so that people would see? Or rather, is it addressing the issues of the heart? And we'll see that this was the very problem for Saul. Saul, on the surface, had everything going for him, whilst his heart was far from God. It was his heart that was the problem and this is the place that we must all start when seeking to become more like Christ. You see, Jesus dies on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven of all our dirt, our filth and shame. But then as he rises again, he calls us now to follow him. He calls us to become more like him. And when seeking to do this, when seeking to address areas of sin in our lives, we cannot just focus merely on the surface of our actions. We need to go much deeper and we need to address the heart. Because it is our hearts that affects the other areas of our life. Look at Proverbs 4.23. It says this, Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Want to change your life? Change your heart. You struggle with outbursts of anger? Look at your heart. Struggling with lust? Look at your heart. Jealousy, gossip, whatever it is, address the heart behind all of these sins and you will begin to see fruit. And, and, and yes, there are often physical aspects to our behaviour which need to be addressed, but ultimately if you don't address the heart, those things will not last. Eventually those things will fail. You can be as disciplined as you like, but if it's not a change in the heart, it will eventually come crashing down. It's the heart that needs to change. And then that brings about the inevitable question, which I'm sure we all had, which is, is, how do I actually go about doing that? Here's the problem. How do we go about changing our heart? You know, making physical changes on the outer seems much more easier, but how do we change the very depths of who we are? And I think we get a clue to it in, in Jeremiah, where it says this in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The truth is that we are experts at lying to ourselves. And we do it all the time. We fool ourselves into thinking we're okay, and that we don't need any help when we couldn't be any further from the truth. We need help. And who better to help than the person who is able to search and test and know the very hearts of men, and that is God. In essence, we need God to expose our hearts for the condition that they're truly in, and then we need his help to change us. We need him to expose, and then we need him to change our hearts. And, and we ask the question, okay, what's the, best, what's the best weapon for such a task? It's the word of God. God's word to us, the Bible, says this, a very famous verse in in Hebrews 4, verse 12, it says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It is the word of God. As it says, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If you want to know what truly is going on in your heart, if you want to truly know the motives behind your heart, then turn to God's word and allow it to expose what's truly going on in your heart. And you do that by daily reading his word, you do it by doing things like now, sitting under the teaching and preaching and proclamation of God and his word. Whenever you do that, wherever you, you hear the words of God, you immerse yourself in the word of God. It is his tool to exposing our heart's true condition. And then as it is exposed, when we see it for what it truly is, then we must turn our voices to prayer. We must speak to God and echo the words of David, who wrote this in Psalm 51 verse 10, "Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. As we come under God's word, as we see our heart's true condition, we fall before God and say, God, man, this is my true state. You see it and you've known it all along. Father, change me. Change my heart. Create in me a clean heart. Oh, God. Back to our text in Samuel, verse 8. It continues, So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammar pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. None of the seven sons brought before him make the cut and I wonder what is going through Samuel's mind. One after another as God rejects each son. One is like this thinking, maybe, okay, this guy. Surely this is a guy? No. And the next guy comes along and is like, this guy? No. And then it goes on and on and on until those sons have all gone by and Samuel says this to Jesse where he says this in verse 11. Are all the young men here? And then he said, there remains yet the youngest. And there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And so he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. The son they least expected was the one that God chose. And why? Because when all the people saw was a teenage shepherd boy... God saw his heart. God saw the heart of a king. God saw a heart that was after God, that was after God's own heart. Verse 13, And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Now that must have been... Uh, <laughs> I know, right? I mean, we all got, well, for those of us who all have siblings, I'm pretty sure if we saw our younger sibling anointed as king instead of us, yeah, we wouldn't be too happy about that. I definitely know I wouldn't be. Anyway, when this is happening, all the brothers are watching. He's anointed as king. And at that point, it says this, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. As he is anointed, the Holy Spirit rushes upon him. And it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that David will be able to accomplish the call set before him. And it is that same Holy Spirit who lives inside all those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Saviour and Lord. If you have repented of your sin and put your trust in Jesus, if you have accepted him and what he has done for you on the cross, the scripture tells us that God himself, the Holy Spirit, is now living inside of you, changing you, shaping the hidden person of the heart. So the chapter ends with Samuel leaving. And although David has been anointed, he will not take the throne for many years to come. To give you an idea... We're only halfway through the the book of 1 Samuel. And David will not take the throne until the beginning of 2 Samuel. And not only that, but he will spend the majority of those years on the run from Saul, who wanted to kill him. And no doubt, there would have been times that he wrestled with the promise that God had placed on his life. I mean, how many years went by, it's like, Lord... You gave me this promise years ago, but I'm still not seeing the fruition of that. I'm still not seeing it come to pass. And yet, through it all, through all of the waiting, God has a purpose. In those moments when we are called to wait, God gives us two promises. He gives us the promise of, I will be with you. And then it's also the promise of, I'll use it. For a purpose. I believe that it was through these moments of difficulty and waiting that David learnt what it meant to be able to say The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And as C. S. Lewis, Christian author once said, he says this hardship often prepares an ordinary person. For an extraordinary destiny, God chose a shepherd boy from Bethlehem to be king to be the chosen king, and does that does that statement sound familiar? A god who chooses a shepherd boy from Bethlehem to become the chosen king. And as I say, in closing, David is a foreshadow, a, a foretaste of what is to come. In essence, he's like a big signpost pointing us to a greater shepherd yet to come, to a greater king yet to come. His name is Jesus. As we read right at the beginning, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, and I came that, may, that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, our good shepherd, came to give us abundance of life. So Jesus you want to know the reason, why did Jesus came? It's summed up in that verse. And if you could even ask people, or if people ever comes, you' like, what? "Why did this Jesus come? Why did he come? He came to give us life. And not just life, but abundant life. A life in all of its fullness, life in all of its abundance. And then we wonder why life isn't working out for us when we completely disregard him and we completely turn our back on him. But Jesus, I would say, Jesus came to give us abundance of life and this is all possible through the cross. Jesus laid down his life for us so that by faith we could receive life. At the cross, Jesus dies in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve so that we could be forgiven and so that we could be given life. This is the story of David. And like this story, like all the other stories in the Bible, it is ultimately pointing us to Jesus because it's all about him. He came to give us life. And the question is, have you accepted that gift of life for yourself and the way you do that is simply by coming to Jesus saying Jesus Jesus hey I agree with you I'm a sinner I've fallen short of your standard and forgive me Lord I want to accept what you've done on the cross for me I want to put my faith and trust in you and receive the life that you promised to receive the life that you gave to me so in closing as I say it When you think of David, I want you, as you look at David, to then look at the greater David to come. It says this, um, and I love this book. It's actually a kid's book. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible and we sometimes use it in kids' ministry because it's a great book and it really outlines the main theme of God's word. And in this book, the author says this, that God chose David to be king because God was getting his people ready for an even greater king who was coming. And once again, God would say, go to Bethlehem and you'll find the new king there. And there, one starry night in Bethlehem, in the town of David, three wise men would find him. David is pointing us to our ultimate king and our ultimate shepherd, Jesus Christ, who would lay down his life for us so that we would receive life. Let us pray together and then before we... Um, take communion together. It's communion Sunday, um, so I'll explain us, talk us through that in a second. But let's pray together first. Um, Father, I want to thank you that you are our good shepherd and you are our King, Father. And um, Lord, I want to thank you that you came to give us life. And this is my prayer, My prayer, Father, is that we would seek to be like you. That we would seek to be people who look at the heart, as opposed. To the exterior, Lord, enable us and, and challenge us to to invest in our heart and the hearts of other people, as opposed to simply investing in the physical appearance. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would change our hearts, that we would become men like David and not become men like Saul. And Lord, we will ultimately want to thank you that you are our greater David, you are our greater King, you are our greater Shepherd, who came to to earth who died on a cross for our sin so that we could be forgiven and so that we could receive life. So Father, as we now take communion, Lord, I pray Lord, that you would bless and remind us of what these symbols mean, Jesus, as we now take them together. In your name we pray. Amen.